For our scripture reading this morning, you may turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 3. And we will be reading through the whole chapter. First Thessalonians 3, beginning in verse number 1. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. But now when Timotheus came from you unto us, and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live, if ye stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for this letter that you had for the church of the Thessalonians. We thank you for the great privilege we have in studying it. And we know, Lord, that you moved the writer of this letter to write specifically what you wanted the church at Thessalonica to receive. And at the same time, you so ordained that this letter would be a part of the canon and would be read and studied and preached on in your church throughout the ages of the church until our Lord Jesus Christ returns. And so this morning as we are gathered, we pray help us to understand the passage rightly, and we pray that by your spirit you would apply it to each of us as individuals, as families, as a church, so that we would be faithful, and so that we would glorify you together as a church body. And these things we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, good again, brother, and to have our Bibles in our hands, and uh, so thankful Interesting, as uh, Brother Dean was praying there, that we have these two letters in our canons. And um, you remember earlier uh, what Satan had done to Paul. 
he had, uh, he had intervened, he had interpreted, the Bible actually says there. And uh, so Paul was not able to go to the church at Thessalonica like he was wanting to do. And lo and behold, even in that, the Lord, through his sovereignty, used Paul to write these letters. We have these letters, brethren, because of what Satan tried to do. Amen. Again, we had such a good Bible study this morning concerning God's sovereignty, concerning his rulership over all things that take place. And we see that even here. It's, a, it's such a glorious thing. I mean, here we are almost 2,000 years later opening our Bibles to these letters that Paul had sent, again, as you remember, to the church, to one of the only churches that he wrote letters to where he did not condemn them for anything. And it is quite a stunning thing when we consider this. One of the many things as an elder that I have come to treasure about the Apostle Paul is his continual Christ-like love and care that he has for the people of God. It's just a stunning thing when you study out. We went through the last portion of the book of Acts, and all we saw there over and over again was the Apostle Paul and his, his great love that he had for the people of God. Let me just say this, that apart from the Father himself, who, who created the church, and God the Son, who purchased the church with his own blood, and the Holy Spirit of God, who seals the church unto the day of redemption, there is no one, humanly speaking, brethren, either recorded in Holy Writ or in the history and annals of time, who loved and sacrificed and cared more for the people of God, for the blood-bought saints, than Paul himself. And again, this is such a unique character that we see in Paul, one that as an elder, <laughs> brethren, that we can learn, and even just fellow Christians, we should learn to behave and to act like this, brethren. And uh, it's really been such a glorious lesson for me. Here in chapter 3, the Holy Ghost does it again. It's an amazing thing. He supplies a spiritual x-ray. And again, brethren, this is so important as we consider our text of Paul. He indeed gives us a clear image, if you will, like an x-ray does. A clear image and look-see at the inside, at the inside, the very inner parts of this man. And again, brethren, as we often say, when one is converted, it isn't from the outside in, it's from the inside out. It's the work that God does on the heart, and then it is flushed out from there. And this, again, is what we see with the Apostle Paul over and over and over again. Now, let me just say this, because this is important for all of us. Again, not just the Apostle Paul, but as brothers and sisters in the Lord. A Christ-like love does indeed have an element of deep affection in one's heart. For those whom you love. That is part of what Christ-like love is. It's having a deep, if you will, desire, a deep love for the brethren. But then there's a second element to it. It causes then a second element. You say, what is the second element? And again, brethren, as selfish Americans, we can't hardly grasp what the second element really is. And that is to actively seek the welfare of another. This is part of what Christ-like love does from the outside in. It is something where you have a, a desire, a love for that person, for those people like Paul did. And then there's this outworking of that. That it 
glows out, and you indeed do as Christ-like love is defined as you see the welfare of another, to imperil your own well-being. Now, brethren, again, this is something, again, that we see in Paul. This is something that me as an elder, I'm learning this. I'm praying as we prayed this morning that the Lord would help me in this, to be able to have this sort of kind of Christ-like love for my own family and for the church of God. It is indeed actively seeking the welfare of another. This is what Christ-like love does. So this morning in our text, it does indeed tell us what a pastor with Christ-like love does. We're again going to see the example. This is what Paul does. He, he shows, he preaches, he teaches, and he lives it out. So this is good examples for us to see these things. Not only that, it also tells us what a pastor with Christ-like love says. So when someone comes to you and you have this love and this desire for them, how then should I speak to them? And this is what Paul does. He tells us and shows us what a Christ-like pastor does. He shows us what a Christ-like pastor says. And yes, brethren, by way of the spiritual x-ray, and this is really important, brethren, that image that going deep down into the heart, into the inner parts of a man. It will show us and teaches us what a Christ-like pastor, elder, Christian is. It reveals what you are. See, I can hide things. I can fake things. Amen? When the Holy Spirit of God is working and doing and x-raying you deep down inside of your heart, that's when it comes out. That's what we're really made of. And this is really, literally, is what we see the Apostle Paul again doing here. What he does, what he says, and who he is. And it really just lays out such a glorious, good example for us as we look at our text together this morning. It is a stunning thing, as I said. I love this trait about Paul. Example after example after example. And I want you to see here in verse Number one, right off the bat, right immediately. There's two words that bring this out immediately in chapter one. Again, the inner man pouring himself outward. And this is what we see. Look what he says there in verse number one. Wherefore, that's one of the words that grabs our attention immediately. Wherefore, when we could no longer what? Forbear, brethren, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. Well, again, in verse number one, he uses two words that immediately captivate our attention and reveal his ongoing pastoral care and affection for them. It's a stunning thing. The word wherefore is an emphatic marker. We've seen this over and over again in Scripture. You know what it does, brethren? Wherefore, therefore, it is a connecting word. So what it's doing is it's connecting what Paul just said to them to what he's about to say to them. He says, therefore, because of. Because of these things, what is he saying? We remember in chapter 2, again, that he spoke to them concerning the family element, if you will, in the church. This relationship that exists in the church. Again, Paul is a father. Paul is a nursing mother. He reminds them of those things. And I want you to see again, even though he's separated from them physically, I want you to see the comment he makes, again, concerning his inner desire, his inner affection 
for them. Look at chapter 2 there just quickly. Again, he's connecting this all together. Look at chapter 2. Look at verse number 17. Chapter 2, look at verse number 17. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in what? Not in heart. There it is again, the inner man. His great love for them. Again, I've been really quickly, and we know Paul was not there very long. He was expelled immediately almost. And his, so again, his great concern for them. He says, I'm gone in presence, but I'm not gone in heart. My inner man is still there. And if you consider there, endeavor to be more abundantly, to see your faith with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once again. But Satan hindered us. He stepped in. And again, I said, it's a glorious thing because when Satan did that, Paul was back for a year writing this letter. And again, this is why we have it. Not because Satan hindered him, because God sovereignly let that happen so that you and I this morning can be looking at this text together, learning again. What a pastor who has Christ-like love, what he says, what he does, and who he is. And these are the things, brethren, that I struggle the most with, to be honest with you. Sometimes those big things, they're easy to overcome. It's the little things. It's me caring for someone else more than myself, which is a struggle and a battle, brethren, that we have. And maybe it's just me. I don't know. I'll just raise my hand. Maybe it's just me doing that. But I have a feeling it's not. And this, again, is what Paul is teaching us. This is what he's going to be driving home from them. In fact, that word warfare ties his desire, his heart that he had for them to verse number one, to that word forbear. Look there. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. Look at verse number five. You notice in verse one he uses we. Look at how he makes it personal in verse 5. We, we who? Paul and Silas, who were there. Look at verse number 1. It's no longer we. Look at verse number 5. For this cause when I could no longer forbear. So the Apostle Paul, it, it, it goes from we to me to I. I could no longer forbear. That word forbear there literally means to hold back, to cover with silence. Now, brethren, again, this is so uniquely tied to so many other portions of scripture. It is a stunning thing. In other words, because of Paul's Christ-like love that he had for them, he could no longer bear to leave the the beloved converts alone. They were there alone. He brought the gospel to them, and he, because of the lack of information, listen, he couldn't just pick his, uh, you know, his S-22 altar up and call over to the church at Thessalonica and call Howard or call Dean or call one of you and go, hey, how are the brothers doing over there? No, he had none of that. He was greatly concerned. Again, this desire, this love that he had for the people of God is just, it's unmeasured in how he was dealing and handling that whole thing. In fact, it's interesting here, brethren, if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, one of the only other times that this word forbear is used is used in 1 Corinthians 13, (laughs) one of the only other times. Look there, if you would, with me for just a moment. Anybody remember, if it was Wednesday evening and I'd ask, anybody remember what 1 Corinthians 13 is all about? What is it? It is a definition. It is a description. It It is 16 attributes about what? About love. This is what we see about charity. The only other time it's used, or one of the only other times, is here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 all circled around the idea of charity towards one another. And I want you to notice the, the, if you will, the attributes of it 
and also the actions, brother. And again, this is more than, just, just think of this. Let's just use this practically for a second. And uh, maybe I can use Ben and Tina as an example this morning. Ben, if you just constantly told Tina, I love you, Tina. I love you, Tina. I love you, Tina. I love you, Shar. Howard, are you listening? I love you, Shar. And you never, ever took an action to show them that you actually love them. What would they think? They would think, no, they don't love me. Because, again, this inward affection that we're supposed to have for our wives and for those who we love has to be flushed out into what? Into actions. And this, again, the only other time it's used is in 1 Corinthians. Let us just look at this briefly. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Just, if you would there, verse number 4. Now listen to the action. Listen to the attributes of what charity is. Look what it says. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophet or verse verse number well, oh sorry verse four, charity suffereth long, and is what kind, charity and envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, it is not puffed up, it doesn't have any pride involved in it. Again, these are the things that are in the inner man. These are the things that are in your heart. These are the things that we must ask the Spirit of God to work on us for, because again, as I always say, you do not have to train yourself. To be selfish, to be pride-filled, to be arrogant, to be uh, ungodly, unholy. What you do have to do is ask the Spirit of God to implement these things into your heart. So that you do do these things, so that you are kind. So that the kind of charity and love that I show towards you and towards others is filled with these things. Look at here, if you would. Verse number 5. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but receiveth, uh, rejoiceth in, true, in the truth. Now verse 7 is where this word is used. That first word beareth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. In fact, he goes on in verse 8, charity never faileth. So in other words, what Paul is saying, what he's saying to the brethren here, I have such a great love, a, a great Christ-like love for you, that these are the things that I'm dispensing out to the brethren. And again, brethren, if you think that's easy, just try it for a day. Try it for a day to put yourself down and to raise others up and do the things here that Paul is talking about. It is not as easy as you think. It is a battle. It is a struggle with the flesh. It is constantly a thing that we are battling and struggling with. In fact, Paul says, look at 1 Thessalonians, he uses the word again in our text. Look at verse number 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Look at verse number 12. Look what he says. He's describing the kind of love that, that we need to have for the brethren and as a good pastor, as an elder, as a Christian, this is how we should be treating one another. In fact, look at verse number 12. And the Lord, and again, this, this is something we're going to come back to because ultimately in the end, when this is all said and done, in verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, it all comes back to the Lord and to the work that he's doing in one's heart. 
Look there, if you would, at verse 12. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in what? In love one toward another. And toward all men, even as we do toward you. In fact, if you back up to verse number 6, which we're going to hit on, he uses it there again. Look at verse 6. But now when Timothy has came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity. There it is, that word that's used. This is the whole concept. This is the whole biblical truth that Paul is, 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 is working on here concerning his own ministry. Paul's separation and lack of information about the Thessalonians imposed in him a godly strain on his inward parts. Do you understand what that means? Now, I think maybe the elders, we can understand that a little bit. I think to a degree. Because, brethren, I don't know if you realize this, but even in our elders' meetings, when brethren aren't here, and there seems to be a pattern that begins to develop. It isn't because, brethren, listen, it isn't because the elders want to control your life. It's because we love you and we're concerned. We're greatly concerned. Because, indeed, that's an area where the Christ-like love, amen, and, again, as this, all as this unfolds, it is, indeed, it boils down to your works, your talents, being used by God within the ministry. It's an amazing thing. In fact, Timothy really, it really comes out in the life of Timothy here in just a moment as we're going to see this. This is all connected. It's all tied together. So Paul's separation from them indeed imposed, if you will, a godly strain on his inward parts, which then, brother, caused him. And again, this is Christ-like love. The strain he was feeling within caused him then to what? to act outwardly, to think about the brethren, and to think about what is best for them. And look what he does. Verse 2. Look what he does here in verse number 2. He's, he's telling us he's, he's constrained in these things. And then look at the action in verse number 2. And sent who? Timotheus. Listen to the description. Paul could not go. So what does Paul do? He looks at a man who he trusted implicitly. And he says, you take my place. If I can't go there physically, I'm going to send you there. Amen. Isn't that wonderful to have a man that you could, hey, I'm in the hospital or I'm tied up. I'm in the prison. They came and got me because I spoke out against sodomy. Hey, uh, hey, Dean, can you run over here and, and do this because I'm in prison? I can't go. You have men, brethren. And this is, again, Timothy, as, he, as we're going to see. A man whom God, or whom God used greatly, yes, and who Paul trusted implicitly. Hey, Timothy, we're going to send you. We're going to send you there because I can't go. You take my place. In fact, it's quite an amazing thing. Look at what Paul says of him. Timothy's a young Christian at this time. I want you to see the description that he gives as he sends this letter. And he says, you remember this, as ye know. How many times did we look at that? You know this. He says, and sent Timotheus, what? Our brother in Christ. In other words, one who's born again, one who's in the family. There's that family thing again. He's talking about that. He's a brother. <laughs> I remember one time I, I kind of got criticized by someone because I kept saying brethren and brother. Well, nobody talks like that. The Bible's full of it. Brother, good morning, brother. 
Good morning, sister. When you're a Christian and you're in, in one with one another, that's what you are. You're a brother. You're a Christian in the Lord. So he calls him, hey, our brother, Timothy, we're going to, he's coming. He calls him, they're a minister of God. Again, that doesn't mean he's an elder yet because he's not yet. But it does mean that he's a worker, that he is indeed ministering these things that Paul's talking about to some of the brethren already. He's a minister of God, a fellow laborer in the gospel. And then Paul says, hey, the reason I'm sending Timothy to you is really threefold. You notice there in verse number two, he says, I'm sending Timothy to you, which then, if you will, take a look there, to establish you. Again, we've looked at these. <laughs> that's why I'm not going to spend an inordinate amount of time, because this is a theme that's all through the letter. It's through this letter, and it's through the second Thessalonians letter. Paul says here, I'm sending Timothy unto you to establish you. You know what that means? It literally means to set and fix them firmly. Something that is immovable, because we know, brethren, how easy it is. And again, as an elder, when you see things over 30 years, you see what happens when the brethren start separating away from the fold. You see what happens. You say, oh, it won't happen to me. Yes, it will. It will happen to you because it would happen to me, because I have to be held accountable too. I need to be around the brethren. I need to love the brethren. I need to exercise my gifts to the brethren. Or you know what happens? It isn't long. Brethren, I've seen it a million times. Miss one, miss one, miss one here, miss one there. Pretty soon you're not here, then you're not there, then you're never there. That's how it goes. That's why it's important, brother. Again, Paul is stressing so many things to the church. The importance of these things. How important they are. He says there, not only did he go to establish them, to, fit, to set them and fix them firmly, but he says also to comfort them, and you remember that last week. Again, comfort. What does that mean? To give them strength and support and distress, difficulty and danger. See, when Paul's writing this letter, people are dying for their faith. You and I in America, not many of us have died for our faith, I don't think, or are dying. Well, we wouldn't be here if we died, but are dying for the faith. Not many. But I can tell you on Wednesday night when we're here praying, we talk about people all over the world who are, who we're praying for. They, they're dying for their faith. This was happening, and Paul just says, brethren, there's great distress, so we're going to come and we're going to establish you. We're going to make sure that you're firm and strong and set in place, and then we're also going to comfort you because of all the distress that's taking place. Look at verses 3 and 4. Again, the reasons why. It's not left to the pastor's imagination. Now he says this in verse 3. He's establishing him, verse, verse 2 at the end, and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be what? Moved. You know what that word moved means? <laughs> now, some of you may have a translation that says shaken. But really, if you look at the word, it means much more than that. None of you should be moved. Have you ever seen, who's got dogs in here? Have you ever seen a dog when you come home and the dog's sitting there and his tail's wagging back and forth like this? That's literally what that word means. Do not be shaken, do not be moved, do not be disturbed, just like your dog when he sees you and his tail's wagging like this, moving back and forth. Be stable, be sound, be firm, be fixed in the faith. This is literally what that word means. Go look it up. 
I'm not making it up. It literally means that. Don't be moved. Don't move to and fro as a dog wags its tail. Don't be soon shaken or disturbed because you know what? Howard mentioned it when we were singing, when, or I think when Brother Dean was going to read the text. Don't be moved. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. Don't be stunned because all of these things that are happening, we as Christians have been what? Appointed to them. Look at verse 3. Know that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were are appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we would suffer, that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, as ye know. So again, Paul simply warning them, I'd like to know how some of these faith, health, and wealth preachers handle this text. How is it that Christians, and again, we're going to look at this, as I said a couple weeks ago, from the very beginning of the gospel in Judea, in Acts chapter 2, all the way even here to the end now, it'll go all the way, all the way through the book of Revelation. What follows the gospel along? Trials, tribulation, persecutions, afflictions, all of it. It follows it along. It's like a Siamese twin. It's a stunning thing. Except in America, we can't relate to that. But Paul's readers could. The brothers who were here in Thessalonica could. And I'm convinced that the day is coming when we will understand it too. We will look at it and it will come to life for us. And it won't just be words on a page. It will be something we're living out. Something where we're together somewhere in a quiet place, reading the word of God, praying together, and wondering if at the next moment somebody's going to come in and whoosh, off with your noggin. America is unique in history. It really is. You don't find what we've had anywhere in history, honestly, where the church has been at peace with the state for this long. And it's coming slowly but surely to an end. It really is. Unless the Lord sends a revival to us. So we better understand what that means not to be moved to and fro like a dog's tail when it's being wagged. You better be firm and fixed. The Holy Ghost better put that in us, brother. You better have that deep down within us so that we can live that out when the time comes. Again, this is what Paul said. What did James say? I mean, there's, there's so many texts concerning the tribulations, the persecutions of the brethren in the Bible. That's why sometimes when you look at it, you don't see us in there because we really can't relate that much to it. What did James tell the brethren? Think it not strange, brethren, as though some strange thing had come upon you. Don't think it's strange when you're persecuted for the gospel. Because it's not strange. It's as normal as drinking water. Although, again, we can't comprehend it. Because we've had such... And please, I'm thankful for it. But it is indeed getting squeezed. He says, you know that we were appointed to this. That word appointed is very clear. Very understandable. It is something that was decreed we talked about it this morning even in Christ's death it was decreed by the father and it was carried out his glorious way in real earthly time 
It's the same thing here. It's decreed. It's ordained. It is, Paul says to them, we are allotted by God himself to suffer. That should give one encourage. Again, when we're getting persecuted and, the, the, and our lives are coming, don't you pray, brethren? I do. The older I get, the more gray hair I get, the more I keep praying, Lord, may I end well. May I end well. Amen? And if he allots me and you to die as martyrs, praise his holy name. That's what it means. He's allotted. He's given. It is something that he does. In fact, Paul, as he did in chapter 2, here in our text, it's an amazing thing. He directs their religious affections to him, to God, who is sovereign over all of their matters. Every last one of them. I want you to see this. Look at verse number 8. Again, as he did in chapter 2. Every verse, bing, bing, bing. He lays this foundation, and then he points our religious affections to the power, to the one who is, is over all, the one who is even, as we're going to see in our text, he's even in charge of whether or not Paul's going to go to them or not. And Paul understands that, his sovereignty in this. Look what we see there in verse number 8. Therefore, well, verse 8, for now we live, if ye stand fast in the Lord. Now, I don't want you to say, well, that word if, it questions something. No, you know what the word if does in our text? It reveals something. Just like 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 revealed something to us, didn't it? They went out from us because they weren't what? They weren't of us. And so when this persecution happens, I can promise you, brethren, the, the one who is not a true believer will leave. If, Paul says, we live if we what? Look what he says in verse number 8. If ye stand fast in the Lord. That will be the distinguishing mark. Whether one stands fast in the Lord. Whether you are a child of God or not. That will be revealed in all of this. Look at verse number 9. Look what he says. For what thanks can we render to God again for you? Again, Paul just drawing their, taking their religious affections right on back to the Father. It's amazing. Look at this. To render God again for you, for all the joy where, with joy you, uh, for your sakes before our God. Night and day, he says, pray exceedingly. Listen. Listen to the sovereignty of God, even in his prayer. That we might see your face and might, uh, praying exceedingly, that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Verse 11. Now God himself and our Father. There it is again. That family, that familial relationship. Remember the father, the mother, the brother. Now he's again drawing their attention back to God the Father. He's the one who's appointed these things to you. He's the one who gives you the power by his grace to stand so that you're not in verse number 8. If. Look at what he says, verse 11. Now God himself and our father. And the Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. That is a man who understands the sovereignty of God. That is a man who even his travels. And again, brethren, how many times did we see it in the book of Acts? Again, that's why all of the things that Paul has gone through. There is not a man, humanly speaking, who has loved more, sacrificed more, cared more, 
for the people of God than Paul himself, humanly speaking. Again, as I said, apart from the Father who created the church and the Son who died for the church and the Holy Ghost who seals the church for the day of redemption. What a glorious example, brother, for all of us as Christians, all of us as elders, those of us who are leaders. What a glorious example to see Paul, and we pray the same way. Oh, Lord, see, this is the thing, and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole. I could. Brethren, I don't know. I'm going to go down one anyway. You ever watched Muslims talking on, the, on YouTube? You ever watched them? You ever listened to them? I have. You know what they say? They're talking to one another. If God wills. If God wills. If God wills, we'll blow this building up. If God wills, we'll do this. If God wills. Everything that they look and they talk about, if God wills it. Brother, and that's what Christians should be doing. If God wills, I will go here. If God wills, I will live another day. If God wills. Instead, we got the Muslims blowing things up, and all they're talking about, if God wills it. And the Christian doesn't have enough reverence for God to even show up, to even worship him in a way that he should be worshiped. I don't get it. <laughs> I don't know. I just want to bang my head sometimes right against the wall. Well, I do. Can't you tell? I mean, look how crazy I am already. But you think about that. If God wills. That was Paul. Even if God wills that I travel to you soon, he's trusting in the Father's good purposes and the Father's good will towards him. Look at verse 12. Again, and the Lord, there he is, make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. Again, what does that reveal, brethren, about our own hearts? I'll tell you what it reveals. It reveals, again, that it is not natural for me to love you and to love all men. It is not. In fact, it's the opposite. <laughs> Actually, it is. When one is left to their nature, to their creaturely uh, nature, ooh, it's a crazy thing we behold, isn't it, brethren? But the Spirit of God, again, must train us. He must teach us. The Lord himself make you to increase and abound in love toward one another. May he do that for us, brethren. May he grant that to us. Finally, look there, if you would, in verse 13. To the end, he may establish you, your hearts. There it is, the inner man, him being establishing. He's the one who establishes. He's the one who makes us fixed. He's the one that makes us stand. But isn't it interesting that the same terminology is used of Timothy? So now do you see, brethren, how the sovereign works? Do you understand this? Paul sends Timothy to establish the brethren. What is he doing? He's using Timothy in his glorious role that he has been used in over and over and over again. We're going to see this. He sends Timothy. And yet it's God who establishes. It is by his power. And yet he uses Timothy. See, this is the thing, brethren. When you're hurting... When you're having issues and troubles, when I'm having issues and troubles, I need someone, don't you? I need a brother, sister, a wife, a husband, a son to help establish me. To help me to be strong and firm and steadfast. And yet it is through that relationship 
that the Father's glorified and the Father by the Holy Spirit of God gives you the power to do that. We experience it a little bit, brother, don't we, when we're street preaching. Have you ever gone street preaching by yourself? I did once. And I never did it again. You know why? I always take a brother with me. Or two. Or three. Whatever it might be. You know why? Why do you think Jesus sent them out two by two? There's power. There's encouragement. There's a pushing on, if you will. There is a fixing, a making steadfast. Yeah. When you're by yourself, you might, I never ran, but it was quite nerve-wracking. Mm -hmm. That's why we need one another. That's one of the reasons the Lord has designed us the way he has. And if we could just, brother, and pray that the Lord would instill this deep down in the hearts of the, of the people of God, this nonsense would come to a screeching halt. A screeching halt. Instead, everybody's too afraid. I'm not going to talk about those transvestites. I'm not talking about those sodomites from the pulpit. Let me tell the transvestites something. There actually is a word in the Bible. Again, here's another rabbit hole. Sorry, guys. There is something that starts with trans, but it's not vestite. It's transformation. It is a word in Romans chapter 12. He's transforming us, making us what? Into the image of his son. That's the only trans there is. <laughs> there's no transvestite. There's no this or that. It's transformation by the work of God himself. Except, aren't they? Remember about a year ago, they were trying to pass this doctrine. What was that called again? I, I preached out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were regenerate, you were sanctified. Yeah, that's the power of God. And this is what we see. This is what Paul is laying out there. These afflictions that they were suffering, brethren, are indeed God's appointments. When we get a hold, and again, is this easy? No. I think of some families in our own church who are going through some things, and it's been, it hasn't been a short thing. It's been a very long thing. And it's still ongoing. But this, brethren, if we can look at it through the lens, and again, it's very hard to do, that God has appointed us to this. This is something that he has given to us through his loving hands, even though it's easy for me, and I, I've said this for hundreds of years, it's easy for a pastor who's not in the storm to, to say these words. But you see, this is where the pastor has to grow. This is where the elder has to grow. The elder has to get into the storm with them. When you cry, we should cry. When you laugh, I should laugh. That's the kind of relationship that Paul's talking about that he has with these brothers in Thessalonica. Yes. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an intimacy that is far beyond, hey, how you doing? How's your day? That's as shallow as the liberal sitting next to you. Shallowness. This is not what Paul had. This is a deep Christ-like love, an inner, if you will, affection for them 
that then caused him to take action, to send Timothy in his place, that he might watch over him. Listen, afflictions, uh, afflictions are indeed God's appointments. Trials are not accidental, but rather they are granted on behalf of Christ. Isn't that what Paul said? Not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his name's sake. When the Christian can get a hold of that one. And brethren, I know, it's hard to get a hold of that one. We live in mansions. We live in mansions. We, we drive around in cars. We, we do all kinds of things. And really, brethren, I don't know. I think it's going to come to a screeching halt. But listen here. Look what Paul says there in verse number 6. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll bring this to a close. He gives us another reason why Timothy is sent to them. And I want you to get a hold of this. But now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity and that, uh, and that uh, ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you. Again, there's the inner, that desire, that love for the people being with one another. Verse 7, therefore, brethren, we are comforted over you in all, your, in all of our affliction and distress by your faith. You ever got really good news? You ever been thinking in your mind? Maybe it's just me, because I'm, as I told a brother last Sunday, we we're having a discussion. I said, I'm very pessimistic about this. Very pessimistic. But you ever thought something and you get this glorious, amazing news? I've got a lump under my arm. They told me it's cancer and they call you the next day and go, whoops, we made a mistake. It's not, it's not cancerous. That's very good news. And this goes much deeper than that. Paul's concern for them. You remember what he said there? Look there, if you would, at verse number uh, 5. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor is in vain. We have no idea how sneaky, craftily, and deceivably the tempter is. That's why we're always talking about it. No, no, no. we got to stick to the Bible. You remember a few years ago, we had that crazy woman's book. Somebody brought it into the church. What was her name again? She just died. Huh? Call Jesus Calling. Remember that one? What was her name again? She just died last week. Sarah Young. Here we have Christians reading this stuff. No discernment. Talking about, you know, I'm just going to write down what Jesus tells me. He already wrote it down. I'm just going to listen. I'm just going to listen. I'm going to do this. And by the time you figure out what was in that book, it was full of soul-damning heresy. And yet, they sold millions and millions of copies, not to the world, you know where it went? Right into the church. Brethren, you wonder why we're always, well, what can I say? We're always on hyper alert about that stuff. Because it comes in and then you've got to go over and say, you should not be reading that. You know why? Let me tell you why. You're not discerning enough to know that. That's what elders and leaders do. They should. They should love you enough to tell you the truth. And that's what I had to do. Get rid of that thing. It's full of 
mysticism and just go down the list of things. Just like old, uh, what's, uh, anyway, that's a whole nother trail. <laughs> but listen, he wasn't only sent to them to establish and comfort them, brethren, in their afflictions. He was also sent by Paul to bring back a good report. He wanted to hear, what is their faith? What are they doing? Faith and charity. We notice those two are tied together. Those brethren, if you look in scripture, are indeed Siamese twins a lot. Faith, charity. Faith, charity. Faith and love. And this is what we see again as we look through scripture. It's quite a stunning thing when you think about that. However, again, the sovereign using one who is not sovereign, a man who is just a man who's been saved, whose heart has been transformed, whose mind has been transformed, Paul, the Lord, I should say, let me say this, that God used Timothy in this role on several occasions. You realize that? Paul Paul spent an inordinate amount of time towards the end of his life in prison. You know what I mean? Emmett have to come, you know, he'd have to come over to the jail and say, hey, Pastor Mike, are you in here? Yes, I'm here. I'm always here. Paul spent an inordinate amount of time in prison, and yet the Lord, writing these letters, writing the one we're reading out of this morning, and writing all these letters that he wrote, these prison epistles. And here we are, using him in a role that God designed him for and appointed him to. I want you to see, go to Philippians chapter 2, just again quickly here, we'll tie this up. But brethren, this comes down to the idea here of the sovereign God using a man who willingly went and formed this unbelievable relationship with Paul. I don't have time. Go read 1 Timothy. Go read 2 Timothy. You'll see the kind of relationship that he and Paul had, that Paul had with him. You know, Timothy lost his father when he was young, right? According to Acts 16, the mother was around, but the father, the father had just gone. We don't know if he died or what happened. And here's... Here's Timothy, who did not have a father, and Paul, who never had a son, who calls himself. Timothy called him his father. Paul calls him his son. Think of that for a moment. Again, that relational thing, that family relationship that you see in the church. Look here, Philippians chapter 2. Look at what it says there in verse number 19. Philippians chapter 2, look at verse number 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy as shortly unto you. That I also may be of good what? Comfort when I know your state. There it is again. Paul's wondering. Remember in Acts, they did it over and over again. Paul says, hey, let us go back to the churches that, that the Lord has used us to plant. We need to check on the brethren. How are they doing? And again, we see here the church at Philippi. He sends Timothy. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. Look at verse 20. Think of this, brethren, having a man next to you. For I have no one who's like-minded. Timothy was like Paul. He was, had a great desire and love and Christ-like love for the church. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own. See the battle? not the things which are of Christ. This is it. This is what Paul is revealing to us again. These are the things that I sit. I, I, I sit in my office, and I read the Word of God, and I study the Word of God, and I say, I don't really see me there yet. 
That's why, brethren, again, as he's checking on their faith and on their charity, there is something called sustaining faith. What does that mean? Sustaining faith. There is faith that is given to you salvifically. Then there's a sustaining faith. And what a sustaining faith is. Do you know what a sustaining faith is? It's one that is, if you will, it grows, it grows in its nature. What I mean is that when you're saved, your faith doesn't stay the same. And if it does, there's something wrong with you. You know why? Look at 2 Peter. We'll, we'll close here. Look at 2 Peter again. I'm talking about a sustaining faith. This is what Paul's wondering about, a sustaining faith. Now, God, as we know, gives us the gift of faith. That's salvific in nature. In fact, Peter here, he indicates that to us, does he not? Look there at verse number 5, 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse number 5. And again, saving faith is assumed in verse number 5. But it's what comes after that. And again, it's the sustaining faith. It is that faith that grows. It is not a, just a neutral, static thing. Verse 5. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. Again, the saving faith is assumed. That's already given by God because if you go back into verse number, chapter, verse number 3, he says this. According as divine power hath given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. He, so he says, add on to these things. This is a sustaining faith, brethren. This is a growing faith. Look at that. Add to your faith virtue and the virtue knowledge. And the knowledge, temperance. And the temperance, patience. And the patience, godliness. And the godliness, brotherly kindness. And the brotherly kindness, charity. You see that? That's something we're growing in. That's something the Spirit of God helps us to grow in. This is a sustaining faith. That's what it is. Look at what he says in verse 8. For if these things be in you and abound, they shall make, uh, make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that, brethren? That's what this is. That's what Paul's checking up on. The tempter was there. The evil one was there. The deceiver was there to deceive them. He's saying, are you growing in your faith? Are you growing in the gift of faith that God has given you? And it isn't easy. Go down. Howard preached through this. I preached through this, I think, about six years ago. Oh, brethren, and you want me to read the Gospel of Thomas? You want me to read some letter that's outside of Scripture? When I, I, All I got to do, I can do here. And by the way, Sarah Young, just to, to finish up on her, she was not satisfied with the Scripture. In that book, in the cover of that book, she said, I need more. You need more? Oh, brethren, there's so much here. There's more than more could ever be more. You understand that? I need more of this. It's a stunning thing, brethren. Don't be deceived. The tempter comes. Oh, yes. This is what Paul was indeed concerned about. Now, brethren, let me close. We have heard what a pastor with Christ-like love does. There's example after example in our text. We've heard what a pastor with Christ-like love says. We have heard by way of a spiritual x-ray. And you know how that happens? The word we've just heard, like he did to me in my office and does to me on a regular basis. Only he can x-ray you. Only the word of God can x-ray you. 
deep down in the heart where I can't see. And you know what? You can't see mine either. But the Lord does. The word of God does. He x-rays you. Uses the power of the Holy Ghost to go in there and look deep down in the heart. That inward part where we can't see. It's an amazing thing. We look and see there. We go down deep inside us. And what do we see? Myself as a pastor, I have to consider, as Paul has spoken and Paul has shown, as I look deep down inside, do I have Christ-like love? And what is it really? That's what you have to ask. Let me close with Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon said this, by way of encouragement to all of us. It is ordained of old that the cross of trouble should be engraved on every vessel of mercy. It is ordained of old, brethren. As the royal mark whereby the king's vessels of honor are distinguished. I can't tell you again, please, go read 1 Peter. Every chapter of 1 Peter, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5, all have one theme. You know what it is? The persecution of Christians. Every one of them. Every one of them. And this is, again, part of what he says is, hey, if you're persecuted, I'm going to paraphrase chapter 4. He says, if you're persecuted, happy are ye. Because the Spirit of God, what, resteth upon you. You are indeed marked as a mercy, a vessel of mercy. This is what it is. Don't think, brethren, when you're persecuted, that it is some strange thing coming onto you because it is the opposite. It is the Father working out his glorious truth. Spurgeon continued, But although tribulation is thus the path of God's children, they have the comfort of knowing that their master has traversed it before them. Yeah, remember what Jesus said? If they, <laughs> well, you think they hate you. They hated me first. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute who? You. Your master's been there already. They have his presence and sympathy to cheer them. The Holy Ghost, brethren, his presence to cheer us. His grace to support them and his example to teach them how to endure. And when they reach the kingdom, again, as we're having our Doctrines of Grace conference, oh, the end, the perseverance, the grace persevering grace and when they reach the kingdom it will more than make amends for the much tribulation through which they passed to enter it this is what Paul is saying to the brethren you got troubles you're persecuted remember I told you we were appointed to this here's the father here's the son Here's the Holy Ghost, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. He's the one, brethren, who will indeed, if you are a child of God, you will indeed persevere through it all. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, we know that there is much here in our text, much more than I certainly have, have dug down into. 
But Father, we thank you for the encouragement that we've been given. For the realities that we have been given. That the Christian life is not just gold streets and gold lamps and gold toilet seats and gold this and gold that. But rather it is indeed a taking up of a cross. It is indeed a denying of oneself. It is indeed a following of our Lord and Savior, our great shepherd, down that dusty trail to the cross. A cross is a place of death. When Jesus said, take up your cross, they knew exactly what he was saying. You will indeed have to put your flesh to death. It is a place of dying. That one might be born again. It's a, just a stunning thing to think, think about that. And yet, Father, we see this here. Paul, the godly and good example of what a pastor does and what he says and who he is. And Father, may we, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're saved here this morning, may you continue, as you will, this work of sanctification, this progressive sanctification, as we, by the power and by your grace, add to our faith those things, those sustaining virtues, those sustaining elements of our faith that we may not be, as Peter said, unknowledgeable, unfruitful, but rather the opposite, that we would indeed be more and more fruitful, we would indeed be more and more Christ-like, that we would indeed be more and more bold to preach that which alone saves, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Father, we thank you now and pray all of these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said.